Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay visits with Thomas J. Ord. Tom is a well-known and very prolific member of the process relational movement. He's a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He directs doctoral students at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Tom is an award-winning and best-selling author, having written or edited more than 25 books. A gifted speaker, he is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for personal transformation. He's a good friend of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons, and his life and work truly embody conversations in process. Um, it, it's so good to have you uh, here today with us. My pleasure. And you're such a leader in, in so many areas, and that includes the open and relational movement. And I'd like to know a little bit, a little bit about the early Tom Ord. Um, as a child, uh, what, what influenced you religiously? How were you religious? And somewhere along the line, if you'd say something about hiking and how photography became part of who you are, and then also the experiences that led you to be personally concerned with theodicy, the question of God and evil. So please share. Wow. All right. <laughs> um, I grew up in a little farming community in eastern Washington state, town of 5,000. I lived on a farm. My father was a school teacher. My mother was a, we would probably call her a social activist or social entrepreneur, but not of the progressive side, just of the sort of community minded person. She organized societies and just was, uh, just has a lot of organizational skills. Both my parents were quite um, pious. Church was really important in our family. Um, they were on the church board for 40 plus years. We went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesdays during the week. Um, and it was a fairly small church, the church of the Nazarene. And, um, one of the advantages of being in a small church, I think, is that, uh, you have lots of opportunities to hone your leadership skills because <laughs> somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so you learn to do a lot of different things. And I learned to do a lot of different things. Um, the uh, Church of the Nazarene is part of the holiness movement, which is known for its uh, strict views on uh, social issues. Uh, no dancing, no drinking, no smoking, no swearing. Um, a lot of those things have uh, stayed true in my life even today, even though I'm not uh, nearly as strict in the way I think about the world. But that was my community. I would say probably half or more of the church had a very fundamentalist view of uh, Scripture and God, but um, very warm-hearted people. Um, 
Uh, many of them were examples, I think, of being loving. They, um, we had a close-knit community. And I think also growing up, I always kind of felt like, well, how do I say this? Um, I was never quite satisfied that the people I knew and the church I was a part of were as, well, it's going to sound judgmental, but I guess I'll just say it. <laughs> Never quite satisfying that they were as loving or passionate as they ought to be. You know, they're, we needed to go further and deeper. And, and my mother was like that. She was always pushing us uh, to, to uh, be more deeply committed, to read our Bibles more, to pray. And she would go to faith healing uh, conferences. We went to all kinds of church events, Christian concerts. In fact, uh, music was a really big part of my life growing up. And I was young when the quote Christian rock and roll thing came around, which was pretty rebellious uh, in those early years. Uh, and I received plenty of criticism. So that gives you a little taste of my, what my life was like. Maybe I'll, I'll add one more thing. Um, it wasn't just that I was a part of this community, although that was important. Um, I took it on personally. You know, I, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life many times, <laughs> into my heart. Uh, and so it was a very um, important personal thing as well. Could you say a word about the Bible and how that functioned? Uh, did you understand the Bible to be inerrant? I mean, was that just no question? Of course it's inerrant. Or no question. A, a word about your relationship to the Bible in those years. Yeah, no question the Bible was inerrant. It gave us all the truth. Now, my father was, uh, he was Dutch Reformed in background. My mother was Pentecostal holiness. And so they kind of came at theology a little differently. My mother was experiential. She was looking for, you know, we spoke in tongues and that was a big thing. My father was, uh, he was, he was fairly ecumenical, but he had a more, you know, let's think this through kind of a theology. He taught me the classic tulip of Calvinism for those who don't know that T stands for total depravity, U for un, uh, unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. But even though he taught me that, it wasn't like this was the way you have to believe. Um, so the Bible was very important, did a lot of biblical Bible memorization. It wasn't until I got to college that I had to face the inerrancy question that it finally you know, I, I realized I, I came to the place where I couldn't believe the Bible was without error anymore. But, you know, I wasn't a young earth creationist ever. Like, we could believe the Bible was without errors and also think that maybe the, this evolution might have something right. That was a big debate, but we just weren't strong one, you know, young earth or something like that. Now, uh, of course, you're known for the unique and yet increasingly um, important theological perspective, open and relational theology. And many people are attracted to that, among other reasons, because of the problem of theodicy, the problem of God and evil. Uh, 
you too have been concerned with that uh, very deeply. Were there early experiences that led to that concern or uh, how did that emerge, that, it, that concern yeah. of your own? I started thinking about the problem of evil for probably in junior high. Um, and I, came, I come from the Wesleyan theological tradition. And so people were quite free about saying they believed in free will. And that seemed to solve some of the questions, um, but not entirely. But I leaned heavily on the free will argument. Um, the, I went through a major crisis my senior year of college. I came to college really thinking I was going to go into some kind of ministry. I thought perhaps it was going to be radio and television. Eventually became a, a theology major. But I was one of these people who uh, would bug you on airplanes about Jesus. I was. Uh, I literally went to bars and sat next to people and struck up conversations about God. I joined Campus Crusade for Christ and shared the four spiritual laws on the beaches of Lake Tahoe one summer. I was a, a, an avid evangelist. And then my senior year of college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time in my life, I read really smart people who were agnostic, atheist, other religious traditions. Up until that time, you know, I had a Bible that was the Word of God. I memorized that thing. You had a question. I had a really set answer, you know. Um, and most people in the world don't take their religion that seriously. So I could out-argue just about everybody. But in this philosopher of religion class, boy, I, I found people smarter than me. <laughs> and... I, I took it seriously. I didn't shirk from the questions. And I remember coming to pick up my girlfriend who became my fiance and now is my wife, her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. And for me, this loss of faith wasn't like an act of rebellion that I wanted to, you know, do drugs and have sex or whatever. It wasn't a, you know, mad at the church for hypocrisy or something like that. It was intellectual. It was, I just didn't have good intellectual grounds to think that there was a God, or at least the grounds I had had shifted significantly. And I wasn't sure what was there anymore. So uh, I was, I called myself an atheist. Maybe I was an agnostic. I just, I couldn't believe in God anymore. Uh, but I kept at the quest. I kept reading. And I eventually came to the place where I decided it was more plausible than not that there is a God. And there were two items that were fundamental in this. One was my search for meaning. I thought there must be something like an ultimate meaning to life. And I can't make good sense of ultimate meaning if there isn't some ground for that, that most people call God. And secondly, I really thought I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to love that in some sense, the Beatles are right. That love is the answer. 
And I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't something like uh, a God who was the source of those intuitions. Um, those are still important for me today. But um, I graduated from college believing in God again, but uh, <laughs> I had a really thin theology, Jay. <laughs> I, uh, I thought God existed. Jesus is pretty cool. And that's about it. <laughs> in fact, that's that last semester in college is when I was introduced to theodicy and process thought because I, I was a, still a religion major and thought, okay, I need to kind of look into this whole um, God of the philosophers. And so I did a research paper on the apostle Paul, you know, who has this, the famous line in scripture uh, talking to the philosophers of the poets or the people in Athens, this God in whom we live and move and have our being. And I thought, well, I should look into this natural theology stuff. So I went to my, um, my little college library and those days we had card catalogs and went to natural theology. And there was a little book called a natural theology for our time. And I thought, huh? And I read another little book called omnipotence and other theological mistakes. I thought, well, this is really wild. I can't pretend to have understood these things, <laughs> but these ideas from process thinkers kind of got a foothold there. I thought, okay, there might be something there um, that I need to look into more deeply. Now I want, I want to turn in that direction very quickly, but I want to go back just a little bit. Okay. Uh, one thing that I love about uh, your work and you, uh, is I love a side of you that takes hikes. Mm. I love a, a side of you that is visually sensitive and a photographer. Mm. I love a side of you that was once in a rock band and briefly <laughs> in a punk band. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, from my perspective, I'm, I'm going to call that the sacramental side of Thomas Ord. Okay. <laughs> the earth is sacrament, music yes. is sacrament. Etc. Hiking is sacrament. Um, yeah. Tom, w was that separate from your religious life? I mean, was your religious life one thing, a matter of belief, and those sides of your life parallel but unrelated or, or, or not? Yeah, the photography art side of my visual art side of life, that came later in life. The music was really important earlier on. Um, I remember as a child singing songs with my family in the car on the way to church or on the way to school. Um, my parents weren't that gifted musically, but we gave it all we had. <laughs> and I'm not, I never had a good voice, but I really love rock and roll. And so formed some Christian rock and roll bands. But then by college time, I was starting to get disillusioned a little bit with Christian rock. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I was tired of these Christian metal bands that every song was like fighting against the devil and, you know, these swords and all this sort of warfare kind of stuff and that. And, um, so um, about six other guys and I formed this group called persecution and all our songs were kind of making fun of themes in Christian rock. Like we had this one song uh, on evangelism called tell God you love him or we'll blow up your family. 
And it was all about this aggressive evangelism kind of thing. And our hit song in that, in that band was called Drown the Devil in the Urinal. And it was all about, you know, we're making fun of Christian uh, metal songs. It was all about killing the devil and this warfare kind of thing. Um, but there were some serious bands in there as well. In fact, in as a master's student, I uh, won a prize for an album I did of all original songs of existentialism uh, and rock and roll. And kind of each week I would read an existentialist philosopher. And then on Saturday, I would write a song and cut an album and I did all the instruments and singing. And <laughs> so that was the music stuff was very closely tied to my faith. It wasn't until later with the photography that I, um, the, I guess there's an aesthetic aspect of music, but when I use the word aesthetic, I usually think of the visual for me. And um, that has become a really, really important part of my, my life, my way of thinking about God living in the world. I get out in the wilderness at least once a week and carry my camera and I go to remote places and I meditate, I pray, I exercise, I explore. I'm an adventurer with my my camera. Um, that's a really important part of kind of my spirituality now. Well, I really appreciate your photography. Thank you. I'm so You've glad. You've been a very a big encouragement, Jay. I appreciate I, you. I'm so glad that that's a part of your life. Um, so we can turn to process if you will, but I have to admit, I'm going to think of your photography as part of process theology Good. too. Sure <laughs> and actually the hiking, actually the hiking. But can you tell me about the influence that people like Hart Sword and John Cobb and others had on you? Um, uh, what did you find intriguing, acceptable? What did you internalize? And were there also areas of resistance? No, I can't go there or, or not. Yeah. Well, like a lot of people who come to process thought, the problem of evil was the lure for me initially, um, trying to figure out how I could believe in a loving God and yet there be genuine evils in the world. Um, that kind of drew me in. And then I started sort of branching out, seeing what it, how it could help in my questions about science, uh, my questions about what it means to be a human person, et cetera. Um, I think when I think about my own position, you might say, on the landscape of people who are attracted to process thought, open relational thought, um, I share a lot in common in terms of why people are attracted to this view. But I think the thing that makes me a little bit different from a lot of people, maybe most people, is for me, it's the themes of love that are paramount, that are most important. What I care about most, Jay, is to live a life of love in all mm -hmm. dimensions. And that means not just personal relationships, but the world, aesthetics, everything. For me, love is a center. And not only did process thought, open a relational thought, help me to envision a God who wasn't responsible for failing to stop evil, but it gave me a full framework, a relational framework to think about love as giving and receiving, uh, 
the world as having inherent or intrinsic values that uh, love had an element of freedom and agency. So I wasn't a robot. Um, you know, I could go on and on all the different dimensions that uh, process open relational thought provided for me to help me to make sense conceptually of what I thought were really deep intuitions about love. I eventually came to Claremont to study and my uh, advisor was David Griffin. And I, I got attracted to Whiteheadian philosophy and Hartshorn as kind of a secondary, um, it's kind of a, how should I say that? I had questions and I realized that if I took on this broader philosophical framework, it would help me answer these questions, you know, the mind-body problem, for instance, and, and think about panpsychism or pan-experientialism or what I call material mental monism, or, uh, you know, thinking about four ultimates in Whitehead's thought. These ideas that I, I would have never really been attracted to had I not earlier had some deep convictions and questions that I need to then iron out all these uh, metaphysical details by embracing additional ideas. Well, the, the emphasis on love, Tom, was that, is that an extension or a continuation of the Wesleyan tradition, the Nazarene tradition? I, I know it's part of your life, it's, it's just human, but, yeah. but would you say that you were kind of a Wesleyan process person? Um, oh, definitely. Although the love emph emphasis? Yeah. Um, you know, love was talked about a lot when I was growing up, and my parents were pretty loving people, so I, I'm grateful for that. Um, there was a lot of love in Christian rock and roll. Um, uh -huh. And so that was attractive to me. Um, but I didn't really realize the direct John, uh, connection between John Wesley and love until I was uh, doing my master's work in my mid-20s. Um, and then I felt like I kind of like, well, oh, there's this, I'm kind of at home here. Probably some of these ideas were implicit, maybe some pastors or teachers who knew the Wesleyan heritage had kind of been teaching this and I hadn't made the connections. But yeah, John Wesley says a lot about love. And um, that's one of the reasons I feel quite at home, or I should say it differently. That's one of the reasons why I've stayed in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a very small, pretty conservative tradition. Um, our theological heritage is Wesleyan, and I feel very comfortable with that. Well, I've read your work on love, um, and I like your work on love. Uh, it, thanks, It's Jay. influenced me. Mm. And, and sometimes I think of, the Tom Ward version of love uh, <laughs> as, as emphasizing two sides of love. Of course, it's active goodwill. It's doing things, it's helping others and also helping yourself. Sure. Um, uh, but there's also what I call the listening side of love. It's simply being a companion to others uh, and oneself uh, in, a, in a listening way. And I see both of those in your way of thinking about love. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah. I would often call it the receiving side of love or the responsive side of love. And when I use the phrase listening side of love, I always credit Jay McDaniel because he's <laughs> the first one to suggest that to me. And I think that's right. <laughs> um, but I think the God whom you envision and whom you share, the idea of concerning whom you share with others has both those aspects. Both oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Tom, in your thought, 
uh, I can't help but read your thought and think for Tom Ward, God is by all means a you, a someone, mm-hmm. a subject with mm-hmm. consciousness, mm-hmm. will, and purpose, different from us but related to us. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you know many, many people who say, I just can't quite go there. Yeah. I think of God as a force and energy, the cosmic compassion at work in the world. There may be a cosmic side, but it's not so personal. Mm. It's not personified. What do you make of that? I make of that when I'm looking at it from an open and relational perspective as those who don't think of God as personal as being attracted to the, what Whitehead would call the primordial nature of God, what I call God's essence or God's nature, which is in one sense abstract. It's, it's not personal. It's not relational. It's not changing. It's steadfast. It's kind of a, a force, <laughs> to use that language you, you mentioned. Um, I think that says something true about God, but not enough. I think we need to add the personal element. And it really goes back to my um, my doubts, atheism and agnostic stage, that if love is somehow at the very heart of why I believe in God, and if love is inherently relational, giving and receiving, active, personal, uh, interactive, relational, then um, I should have at least a way of thinking about God that has those features, those aspects. And of course, open or relational thought provides that for me. So, um, yeah, you know, when I use language like God is personal, I give lots of caveats and say, you know, I don't mean God's my personal butler. I don't think God has a, an extra big body and things like that. So I make qualifications, but I do think God is relational in the sense of not only acting benevolently toward me, but also receiving my response and then reacting to that. One more question along these lines, Tom. Uh, Someone might hear you and say, ah, but he's rendering unto God that which belongs to human life. It's it's anthropocentric. He's taking, you know, we humans are self-conscious, and he's imagining God like that. Uh, That's deeply anthropocentric. Uh, I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not, but I understand that. How do you respond to that? I say some anthropomorphism is inevitable if you're going to have something true to say about God. If you want to go absolute apophatic, if you want to say God is absolutely in no way like us whatsoever, no categories are going to even come close to depicting who God is. If you want to go that whole route, you can. Most people don't do that consistently, though. (laughs) They'll say that, and then they'll, in the back door, bring in some qualities and characteristics. But I want to say, let's if you're going to talk about God and mean something by it, have some sort of um, um, meat on the bones, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have, you're going to be anthropomorphic in some sense. So the real question is what senses of, or what ways God is God like us and us like God and which ways are we different to use the more classic language? How does God transcend us in some ways, but also imminent like us in other ways? 
you know, uh, there's an old Portuguese prayer. Uh, Dear God, I have never believed in you, and I've always loved you. Mm. <laughs> and it's in the person who can say that, you know, prays. Yeah. And, and senses that there's someone listening. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, intellectually, it doesn't make sense to them. And nonetheless, uh, I've, um, Tom, I want to turn to people who are attracted to open re- and relational theology, who read your work, who like so much of what you say, but from their perspective are more traditional and maybe even more liturgical. Uh, I have known people, Episcopalians, Catholics, who say, you know, when I worship the liturgy, the, the traditional language, it's part of my heart and soul, and it shapes me. It's my devotional language. It's, it's my language. And I think Thomas Ord is asking me to speak a different language. Mm. Can't I be part of the open and relational movement, but speak my language. Hmm. How would you respond? It's a very difficult question because I'm skeptical that language ever captures fully anything about reality, let alone God. So I think we always need to be humble when we talk about, you know, this language is better than that language. But it's also true that I think language can tell us something about God. So I'm not someone who just, you know, throws language out. There might be some language that's better than others. Um, In terms of liturgy, you know, um, so much of the liturgy is poetic, aesthetic. And when I keep that in mind, I'm able to... um, sometimes say things that I might not otherwise say because I, I sort of uh, believe that this is an aesthetic attempt to talk about the divine. But um, there's a side of me and that you prob- that you know, Jay, that is also uh, wants to be careful about my language and really try to say things I actually believe because probably because of my past, but also my present. Um, I have been hurt by ways of thinking about God, ways of describing God. And I don't want to be guilty of doing some hurting to others. Plus, I found that if I try to be careful with my language and say what I really believe, I sometimes come to new insights that I think are invigorating and uh, prompt me to praise, worship, and thank this God that I might not have come to had I just kind of went along with whatever was on the screen or the paper or whatever, you know, in the service. Um, I suppose also I come from a low church tradition (laughs) and, uh, and in a low church tradition, um, we have our own aesthetics, but they tend to be a little different and what's valued tends to be a little different. Somebody gets up and prays, spontaneously with conviction they might say some things that um i would shudder at but uh the way they pray them i just feel like you know their heart's in the right place and i might then later talk to them about some other language that that i would prefer um so um 
Yeah, I don't know. It's a very diff. It's a complex set of issues, Jay. And I don't know if I'm articulating myself well. Maybe well, you're, saying, you're saying a lot of things that I think make sense. And mm. that person that you described that prays from the heart, using words that wouldn't be your own, but you sense an authenticity of their heart. Yeah, and the act of prayer. Uh, I'm an, a lay associate in a Benedictine community. Uh, in a monastery, it's sisters. Um, so, and I pray with them. And it's not the language that I would choose in isolation, but mm. I sense a rightness of their heart. Uh, and I often wonder, can people like that be part of the open and relational movement? Uh, yeah. Should they be? Need they be? Uh, does it matter? Uh, yeah. So that's what's behind my questions, because there's so much of their life that parallels what love, yeah, love. Uh, I want to ask you, Tom. Is there um, would you speak of open and relational practices? Is there a way of living that goes along with open and relational theology? Mm. Yeah, there probably is, and there's a lot more to say than what I'm going to say. But the first few things that come to mind. Um, I think open and relational because it thinks that the future is open and unsettled. There's always a sense that the next moment something new is arriving, that things aren't set in stone, that there's a kind of sometimes spontaneity, sometimes just planned expansion of something different. And, um, so that openness to a yet-to-be-decided future, I think, is it affects so many parts of our lives. But it's kind of a general way of being in the world that many people find very attractive. Um, the relational aspect, um, we usually emphasize God being relational, which means that God is affected by what happens in the world, what we do. God weeps when we weep and, more, and rejoices when we rejoice and those kinds of things. And that's often emphasized. And so that means that our lives matter to God. Um, I think open and relational people generally believe that even though they're just one person or one community in a big universe, that they are significant, that they affect others and their environment and the God of the universe. And um, at least I find that to be an incredibly empowering and um, encouraging thought that my life matters. Um, you know, being relational in terms of how we treat one another, um, the sort of love emphasis. I, not everyone talks about love as much as I do, but I do think it surfaces uh, implicitly all over the place in the writings and living of people in open relational community. Um, so there's some really general responses, Jay. No, that that's great. Do, now, do you think that uh, God can be surprised? I do. Yeah, I think God's surprised not in the sense of God didn't know it was possible for something to happen, but mm -hmm. God can be surprised in the sense that God really thought we might do X and we chose Y instead. <laughs> now, I've been reading some of your writings of late. And you do talk about emotions in God. You have for some time. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that God can delight in being surprised? I think so. I think God enjoys a good joke. Mm-hmm. A well-told joke that has a punchline that God didn't see coming, God gets a kick out of that, I think. I, I was thinking a little more like, well, I know McDaniel well enough to know he's probably going to do the wrong thing. <laughs> but what do you know? He did the right thing. <laughs> Mom, do you want to say a word uh, about uh, Jesus and the role that Jesus plays in your life? Yeah. I have been working on this since I was a kid, Jay, trying to figure out this Jesus guy. (laughs) When I was younger, Jesus and God were just interchangeable. They just, the two words meant the same thing in my life. Um, As I got older, you know, I was taught the Trinity and tried to figure that out. That was, that was and is a difficult thing for me to get my head around. (laughs) Of course, I'm not alone in that. Um, I like to say that Jesus, in my view, gives me the best picture or revelation of the nature of God's love. Um, I don't think Jesus tells me other things about God. Jesus doesn't tell me God's omnipresent, for instance, because he lived in one place. Jesus didn't know everything, so God's not, or Jesus is not omniscient in the way that I think God is, etc., But I think Jesus is the best revelation, not the only, but the best revelation of a God whose nature is love. I want to pattern my life after this Jesus, not in the sense that I'm learning Aramaic or wear robes and that sort of thing, or hang around in Jerusalem, but in the sense that because he did amazing job of discerning what love looks like in his day-to-day interactions, I want to try to discern what love might look like in my life, in the kind of world I live in. Um, I want to imitate this Jesus. And so I'm a follower of Jesus in that sense. I'm not exactly like him, but um, I'm trying to be somewhat like him in terms of how I live my life of love. Does the idea of uh, the risen Christ play a role in your thought. So not Jesus as he lived in the past, but something about Jesus as a living presence now. It's a hard one for me, Jay. Uh, You know, you and I recently had a little bit of an exchange when I tried to talk, uh, when I reviewed um, Trip Fuller's book and tried Mm -hmm. to think about the different ways that we could talk about Jesus' presence in our life. I really think of Jesus as being an individual, not an omnipresent being. But I think his influence, what he did has influenced so many so widely that he has kind of, well, in the early part of the 20th century, a lot of philosophers and theologians would talk about energies. I think Jesus has, his actions have this rippling effect of energies widely in the universe. Uh, because he is a relational being who refe- who uh, relates to other beings and influences them positively. So I can imagine an actual person, Jesus, continuing to have actual relational impact upon me and my life and throughout the universe 
even though I don't think he as a person is omnipresent. That might be more technical of a reply than you wanted, but <laughs> that's no, how no. I think about it. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, you know, some process people believe in a continuing journey after death and some don't. Um, how about you? Yeah, I'm in the camp that thinks it's plausible that we continue to have subjective experience beyond death in an afterlife. Um, I think the person who was most influential uh, in me on this is David Griffin, when he introduced me to the uh, near-death experience literature. Mm -hmm. And I just had to take that seriously, even though it's some of it's kind of kooky and there's, you know, divergent accounts of things. Uh, but not just near death, but out of body kinds of uh, experiences, even some of the parapsychology stuff uh, is intriguing to me. I don't know what to do about all of it. But um, that made me think I couldn't just dismiss the possibility of life after death. Of course, I don't, I don't know for sure. But this has given me a kind of hope that I might continue to not only experience the love of God beyond the death of my body, but make a contribution to God's own experience and to the experiences of others. Um, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell. I don't believe in annihilationism, at least in the sense of God annihilating us passively or actively. I'm not a, a uh, Bartian universalist or even a David Bentley Hart universalist who thinks that God has either created us such, in such a way that we will inevitably say yes to God in a universal reconciliation or that God has got the kind of omnipotent power to eventually force everyone into eternal bliss. But I am, uh, um, I call my view a, a relentless love view that says that God never gives up inviting and there's the real hope and possibility that everyone will eventually cooperate, but it won't come through some kind of display of omnipotence. What, what lay behind that question in part, Tom, was, was might Jesus also have enjoyed a continuing journey after death? And I think so. What, one thing that's behind that is when I go to um, churches, in my, in my instance, I'm thinking of the black church here. And when people say, thank you, Jesus, I sense that they're not simply addressing someone in the past. Mm. Uh, they're addressing what feels like a living presence here and now. And so that's made me wonder um, if there's a continuing journey for Jesus uh, after death, might he be alive in some very important way? Yeah. As a kind of cheerleader, a champion, a co-partner co in the luring process. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, may, we might disagree on this one, Jay. I don't know. <laughs> um, That's permissible. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I, I do think Jesus has continuing subjective experience beyond the death of his body in this resurrected kind of life, whatever that looks like embodied or not. Um, I think one of the things that inclines me away from a universal Jesus with who would be able to hear the thank you, Jesus, of the person in Alabama and in Alaska um, is part of my own thinking through of my heritage of Satan. 
the devil. Um, the devil played a really big role in the piety of my youth. And we were fighting the devil left and right and demons left and right. And um, part of my working through that was beginning to think through the attributes of any particular demonic being. If there's a, an actual Satan or actual demons, would they be omnipresent? And I don't think they would be. And I kind of apply that logic to Jesus as well. If, if, if demons are localized beings, Jesus is probably a localized being. And that means that, uh, yeah, <laughs> that means that when we pray, uh, you know, not every demon is going to hear the prayer and Jesus wouldn't hear the prayer. <laughs> I remember <laughs> this might have, this, this theory may have arisen out of uh, a sense of frustration as a youth pastor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the church that I was a part of, the uh, pastor required me to get up uh, early on Sunday morning to come to the church and pray at the altar with the elders. And uh, so I would begrudgingly get out of bed and, you know, show up at the altar to pray with these old elders. And this one particular elder was, he prayed against demons and he, he thought they were everywhere. And um, he also believed in the power of Jesus name. And uh, he would pray, you know, Demons, we know you're here. In the power of Jesus' name, we rebuke you. We cast you out of this place. You have no place here this Sunday. You cannot be in this building in the name of Jesus. And you must obey because Jesus' name is important. And I remember thinking, okay, let's say the demons are actually existing and they hear this prayer and they have to do what my good brother says they must do in the name of Jesus. Let's say a prayer that they can never be in this building ever again, and I can sleep in on Sunday mornings. <laughs> so as I've, as part of thinking through the logic of the demonic beings, that, that made me start wondering about the uh, the lack of omnipresence on Jesus' part. <laughs> well, I, that, that helps me understand. You know, I grew up in the Methodist tradition, and I'm afraid that we were... Uh, there were no demons. There was there was only only the good spirits. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yep. Who knows? Tom, you know, um, I think that your movement, I call it your movement. It's more than you. But I do think the open and relational movement bears such indebtedness to you. And mm. I'm so glad that you're continuing to, to be the leader that you are. Mm. Can you say a word about your hopes, your aspirations for, for this movement. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'd like to give a little history of kind of Dude. where things have been. So given the background that I've been sharing with you and others who are listening or watching this show, you would understand that my attraction to process thought as a college student, seminarian, later, would be something looked at with great suspicion, great suspicion amongst other theologians in my tradition, amongst the leadership um, process thought is thought of as liberal. And of course, no one wants to be liberal in my tradition. That's anathema. 99% um, of people who had heard of process thought in my tradition were 
had misunderstandings about what it was, but they knew it was liberal and that was bad. So um, for a while, I did my darndest to try to educate people. And uh, some of them listen, some of them probably weren't, this is, this, I don't say mean to sound elitist, but some of them weren't intellectually capable of getting their heads around the nuances of this. And I thought to myself, you know, there's lots of fruit in this process tradition that these people would just embrace if they just had a different label. That stupid word process becomes such an obstacle for them. About this time, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, Richard Rice, uh, William Hasker, and Dave Basinger came out with the book called The Openness of God, 1994. These guys are solid evangelicals. <laughs> These guys are on our team. They talk like Wesleyans. They care about Jesus and all these kinds of things. Um, and yet the vision of God they're portraying sounds remarkably like this process God. They themselves are going out of their way to distance themselves from process stuff because they know the political implications of being associated with those liberals. So they are saying, no, we're not process. We have an omnipotent God and all these kinds of things. And some of these distinctions were real, but others of them, I think, were more positioning than real subst uh, substantive. Um, near the end of the 1990s, I'm a student at Claremont and John Cobb invites these five guys that I mentioned, as well as a, a number of other people to come and have this uh, conference with the openness and process people in Claremont. And, and he invited me to be a part of this. And I was, you know, really honored to do this. And there were 30 or 40 people. It was a pretty good sized crowd. And I'll never forget the first night when everyone was kind of introducing themselves. And then we kind of went around the circle. Process person after process person talked about having a background that was either evangelical or pietistically conservative and shared testimonies about feeling like they had to leave that tradition in order to embrace process thought. And I thought to myself, here are these openness guys who are trying desperately to stay in that evangelical tradition, who want to remain true to scripture and keep that first and all these kinds of things. Um, and, and they want to distance themselves from process thought. Is there some way we can have an umbrella that we can all be under, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an includer. <laughs> I want to include people. And um, that got me to thinking that maybe if we called this umbrella open and relational, um, more people could feel comfortable under that label. And so um, I proposed to the American Academy of Religion to start this group of open and relational thinking. And um, first time we're together, John Cobb and Clark Pinnock gave papers and, and um, that group has developed into some very nice ways over the years. And that label, to my delight, has been the kind of 
label that lots of people from very conservative social views on things. You know, there's one person who's a part of the open relational camp who's a dyed in the wool pro gun advocate. And there's others in the camp who are just anti-gun. And, you know, there's all kinds of differences underneath this big open and relational umbrella. But they share in common these deep assumptions about the future being open, the gods being relational, and a lot of love talk, um, even despite these other kinds of differences. So I'm optimistic in a world in which the political scene puts us at each other's throat and they're real issues. I'm not trying to, you know, say politics doesn't matter, it does matter. But in a world in which there's so much division, if there can be a general picture of an open, relational, and loving God that can bring people together, that gives me hope. And I just find people responding with eagerness, you know, wanting to participate in book projects. Whereas there's a new launching thing of... Um, a liturgy that people are doing, preaching and sermons. There's another project that's, that's just come online of all kinds of children's books written from an open and relational perspective. Uh, there's an academic book series. There's just things popping all up over the place. And, and, and of course, you've been super great, uh, gracious, Jay, in, in incorporating that language often in your own thinking. And I, I suspect you're like me. Uh, in fact, you're probably more like more than me. You're more of an includer even than I am. And that's something I admire about you. Well, I think to be told that I'm more like Tom Ward than Tom Ward <laughs> is, a, is a pretty high compliment. And, I, and I'll, I'll try to live up to that. Uh, there's so there's so many people that are really really uh, grateful to you and inspired by you, hmm. and I'm certainly among them. Hmm. And yeah, I, I I speak of open and relational in parentheses process yeah. thought, and I put the parentheses because I don't think you need to be processed to be open and relational. And I know I know you you think the same thing. Yeah. Well, what's strange uh, is. Those people who only want to use the openness word, like the openness word means that the future is open, that God's experiencing time. And that's what the process word means. It's just that there's all these other connotations that go along with those two words that make them problematic in some contexts. So, But Tom, is it, is, is it the case, I didn't know this, that there are children's books and liturgies being developed in the open and relational modality? That's right, yeah. There's a, once we get the website fully in line, I'm gonna announce that probably the end of this month, uh, one of my students has done a massive literature review of, of current books, and then there's people writing books right now from an open and relational perspective, because we know that you know getting this kind of, these ideas and the minds of children to consider early on is really important. There's a really powerful group uh, doing stuff to start electionary and liturgical resources. A uh, couple of um, homiletics professors at seminaries here in the UK are leading that up. So yeah, exciting things going on. Well, listen, thank you so much, mm. Tom, for, for a good, good long discussion. And um, again, much gratitude. Keep up the great work. 
Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jay. And thanks for all you do at Open Horizons. It's yeah, um, sure. You're a model of, uh, I said inclusiveness earlier, but that's true. Also a model of diversity. My goodness, you can make connections to a process thought, open a relational thought in ways I'd never dreamed of. And that's a, a true gift. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Peace be with you. See Thanks. you again. Also with you. See ya. Bye-bye. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.